Hello there, and welcome to the Audio Epics podcast. We're over halfway because today we are premiering the seventh episode of The Treasure of Boneyard Bay, out of the twelve. Although the later episodes will be longer than the ones we've had so far. In this episode, our friends set foot on Garadoso. It will contain four chapters, the island, the flowers, the temple, and the room. We want to thank you all again for listening, sharing, and commenting, and we hope you're getting immersed in the story and that you're having fun. After this episode, there will be five more to come. If you want to support us to keep creating these epic stories, please check out our Patreon page on patreon.com audioepics. The tiers are based on witch hunter ranks in our setting of Ruda. You can become a guardsman or even a grand general. You'll get access to all exclusive Patreon content like bloopers, and from the Master Witch Hunter tier onward, you'll even get the full download of the extended edition, with almost an hour of extra scenes. Check it out on patreon.com slash audioepics. The extended edition is also available for purchase on Bandcamp. Finally, the novel The Treasure of Boneyard Bay can also be purchased on Amazon. Don't forget to subscribe and get notified of new uploads or updates. That's the ring of the notification bell, and also the bell that says, Shut up, Domine, and just start episode 7 already. The Island They rode to the island of Garadoso in the two remaining boats. Von Baumeister had insisted on the spiritual protection of the priestess, and taken her with him in his boat, along with Turmgard. Ludlov, Chapelle, Federhel, Gustav and Alvarado were in the other, the same group that had ventured into the crown of Kulmar. This time it was Gustav and Federhel who had the honor of rowing. Since Gustav had his backpack with him, the boat with von Baumeister and the priestess aboard was traveling much lighter. Although the master witch hunter had insisted everyone pack as light as possible, Gustav had been stubborn again, claiming he needed every single item of his luggage. Eventually, the master had reluctantly complied and told him he wouldn't feel an ounce of pity should his heavy burden eventually become the end of him. Ad had stayed behind with the captain and the crew of the ship, as von Baumeister had demanded. The Flatlander had shrugged and wished them a successful trip. Ludlov was facing the island, seeing the misty jungle slowly growing and taking shape before him. Only occasionally did he look back towards the Teresia to see how far they had come. Above him, the clouds were breaking up and the fierce heat of the sun pierced through. It made the cloud of fog, which still claimed the island ahead, look even more mystical than other worlds do, like they were really heading into some mythical past. Gustav, you're all like a witch fleeing a pyre, Federhel commented wearily. I can't keep up. The two rowers were sitting opposite Ludlov, facing him as they rowed with their backs to the island. Federhel's face was glistening with sweat and red from both the heat and the exertion of rowing. Gustav, on the other hand, looked rather flustered with excitement and seemed inexhaustible, even though he was a much older man than Federhel. Gustav can't wait to visit the island, it seems, Chapelle said, regarding him with a smile. He is excited about the treasure, Alvarado said. We are finally really getting close. Or rather, the single item that has been promised to him, Ludlov noted. Whatever that might be. Will you stop talking about me? As if I'm not here, Gustav said breathlessly. The others chuckled. <laughs> Seriously, Gustav, does your excitement have anything to do with this item you will receive when we find the treasure? Ludlov asked. Gustav grinned at him. When, you say? Sounds like my optimism is beginning to rub off on you, Initiate. So, does it? Ludlov reiterated. All right, yes, you know the man, Gustav said. I'm excited about the item. 
What is it? Ludlow asked directly. Just one small thing. You wouldn't even notice it among all that treasure. How do you know it's there? Legends. Ludlow shared a look with Federhelm. It's got to be some magical item. Chappelle frowned disapprovingly. Undoubtedly, Alvarado said. But what would it do? Gustav heaved a loud, annoyed sigh. Ah. Are you practicing for witch hunter interrogation techniques? Fine, I will tell you. It's an item that will end my loneliness at last. Now let me roll. Alvarado shrugged. That sounds harmless enough. Chappelle shot an angry glare at him. It's still magic initiate. And we don't even know what kind. I don't understand why the Order approves of this. It was a promise, Ludlow said. We don't break promises. He imagined a magic item that could bring Maria back to him. And he knew it would be hard to refuse such a thing. Even though if it existed, it would go against the will of the goddess. Chappelle said nothing for the remainder of the trip to the shore. Their boat arrived considerably later than the other one. Von Baumeister, Turmgard and Blessed Zeilenheim were already standing on the beach, and of course their master didn't waste the opportunity to tell them off. Ludlow barely noticed Von Baumeister's complaining as he took in their new environment. The main island of Garadoso was an utterly alien place, unlike any he had visited before. The jungle rose up on steep hills and cliffs right in front of them, shrouded in silver mist. A narrow veil ran between the ominous heights, utterly dark and dense with exotic trees and bushes. That will be our road, he said softly. Excuse me, initiate. Did you have something to add? Von Baumeister asked in a biting tone. I was just thinking that it looks like there's only one way ahead of us, Ludlow said, and it will be through that pass, but it looks completely overgrown. That will not be a problem, Gustav said, as I had expected we might run into some dense foliage on our journey at some point. He rummaged around in his backpack, which was still in the rowing boat, and eventually took out what looked like a sheathed blade, about the length and size of Ludlow's forearms. It's called a machete, Gustav announced proudly. He drew the weapon almost ceremonially. It was broad-bladed and slightly curved. Its primary purpose is hacking through vines and bushes, and perhaps the occasional opponent. I assume you only have one of those, Tormgard said. Actually, I bought one for each of you, which I will now gladly distribute. No, of course I only have one, Gustav snapped. That will be fine. Then you may take the lead, said von Baumeister. And as Initiate Ludlov remarked, there is only one way to go. Draw your blades, all of you. We will make quick work of this jungle. They left the boats far enough on the beach and ventured into the dark wilderness. Gustav took the lead, with Alvarado and Ludlov slightly behind, followed by Federhel, Chapelle, the priestess, Turmgard, and finally the master. The sea and the spike where the Teresia lay anchored soon disappeared behind the shadowy growth as they set forth. It wasn't long before the sky itself disappeared from view, utterly obscured by the forest canopy above. Even though it was not yet evening, it became so dark that they had to stop and make torches before continuing, slowing them down even more. Cutting a path through the underbrush was tiring work, but Gustav went about it with childlike glee, thrilled at the opportunity to use his new toy. He was so enthusiastic in his slashing at the plant life that Ludlow and Alvarado had to dodge both his machete and his waving torch a few times. Eventually, even Gustav agreed they needed to take a rest. They reached a place where the trees were further apart, and the feeble light behind the clouds of mist became visible again, eliminating the need for their torches, which they discarded. 
They found a suitable spot to rest in a small clearing. It lay near the inside of the crumbled remains of some huge tree stump, the rest of which was nowhere to be seen. It was like the ruin of a little round fortress of bark, covered with moss and mushrooms. A bright green frog jumped out of the way and disappeared as Ludlow sat down on an outcropping. They drank a bit of water from their canteens and enjoyed a brief moment to recover their strength. The sounds of the jungle were all around them, many of them so strange that Ludlow couldn't tell whether they came from birds or insects or some other sort of creature. The jungle's full of strange animals, Federhel said knowingly. He had also been listening. I've heard it said that there are great cats living in jungles like this, Chappelle said. Black ones with yellow eyes and claws that could rip off your face in a single strike. Panthers, Alvarado confirmed. Yes, they live on the mainland of Esclavia as well, but they never come near our settlements. In a place like this, though, you might come across them. And then there are the parasitical millipedes. I once met a man who had made a journey through the jungle where one of those things had dropped down from a tree branch into his collar. It had crawled down his neck and attached to his spine. It was still attached when I spoke to him. He actually showed it to me. That sounds... annoying. I'm sure it wasn't too good for his love life, Tomgard commented. He told me it gave him horrible nightmares about his own death. Alvarado replied. He died in a fire a year later. Did the millipede cause it, or merely warn him? That I don't know. You know, if you go on like this, I might not want to continue the journey, the priestess said softly. Don't leave us, blessed, von Baumeister said. We need you. Please don't be too alarmed by these storytellers. We didn't mean to frighten you, Ludlow said. Please forgive us. Apology accepted, Initiate. Now let us continue while we still have some daylight and some courage left. The clouds had broken, revealing an evening sky of soft blue, purple and pink. The air was still pressing and hot, though, and Ludlow found his clothes sticking to his body with sweat once more as they hacked their way back into dense undergrowth. The mountainous hills that had flanked them earlier in the day were no longer visible, leaving their choice of direction open. Intuitively, they all agreed to follow the road in the same direction they had travelled so far, leading them downhill into ever-denser jungle once again. We might need to make torches again, said Alvarado. It will be dark soon. If you want my opinion, I think we should make camp before that, Federhel said. Ludlow didn't know what he thought of spending the night in the pitch blackness of the deep jungle, but moving ahead through the night might be even more dangerous. There could be dangers ahead that would be hard to spot in the dark. As he was thinking this, his gaze absent-mindedly wandered towards Alvarado, who was just ahead of him slashing at the underbrush besides Gustav. The Esclavian's shoulder gently touched what looked like a bright green vine. Ludlow gasped, but it was too late to sound a warning. There was a flash of movement, as sudden and forceful as a bolt of lightning. Alvarado's rapier tumbled down into the undergrowth as the snake wound itself around his neck, throttling the young man. The creature's head appeared, snapping at Gustav, who jumped out of the way quickly. The snake hissed menacingly, its silver eyes remaining cold and unreadable. Alvarado grasped the snake, desperately trying to pull himself free, his mouth moving, but his throat unable to produce more than a stifled gurgle. Moving too swift to follow, the green serpent wound itself a second time around him, now covering his mouth and chin, still throttling him with a strength that seemed impossible for its modest girth. Ludlow held his blade ready, looking for the precise moment to strike. But the creature moved so fast, it seemed impossible for his rapier to hit it while avoiding Alvarado. Gustav was in the same position, waving his machete threateningly at the snake, not daring to strike. Behind him, Ludlow could hear panicked voices. Chappelle's rose above the others. 
It's killing him! Do something! She cried out, and Ludlov knew she was right. What remained visible of Alvarado's face was turning purple. Losing no more time, Ludlov pulled a much smaller knife from his belt, not his dagger, but rather something he used more as a utensil than a weapon. He plunged it into the green mass around Alvarado's neck with all his might. The blade was not long enough to reach his friend's skin, but sharp enough to hurt the snake badly. As he had expected, the creature turned its head towards him, baring its needle-like fangs. In that moment, Ludlov was overwhelmed by anger at this monster's audacity. How did this worthless worm dare to hurt his friend? Leaving the knife stuck in the snake's body, he turned his focus to the gaping maw that reached out towards his face, ready to take revenge. Not today, he grunted, and grasped the green serpent's head in one hand, squeezing its mouth shut, astonishing even himself in that moment. With his other, he pulled out the knife and slit the snake's throat, causing blood to spurt out. So enraged was he by the monster that he proceeded to twist its head and then cut it off entirely. Alvarado dropped to his knees, still unable to breathe and wrapped in the snake's body. Gustav quickly came to help and untangled the dead thing. By this time, the young Esclavian lay limp in the underbrush, the contents of his backpack squashed underneath. His throat was discolored and his chest didn't move. Oh no! Gustav said in a jittery voice. This is not good. Not good. Not good. This is not. He kept repeating the words as if they would somehow help, then took off his backpack to open it up and look for some remedy. Ludlov raised Alvarado's head and tried to give him some water from his canteen, but it simply flowed out from the corner of his mouth again. He looked around in desperation. Everyone just stood there looking just as shocked and helpless as he felt, except for Chappelle. The Goldorian knelt down beside Alvarado and told Ludlov to lay his head down. Ludlov obeyed, not sure what she would do next. To his shock, she proceeded to kiss the man, although not in a very gentle or romantic way. Ludlov could only hope this move was not naively inspired by some fairy tale, but then he noticed she wasn't kissing Alvarado, but blowing into his mouth. She sat upright again, waited a moment, and then repeated the action. It felt like time hung suspended in one unbearable moment as she kept blowing air into his mouth intermittently. But nothing happened. Chappelle grew more frantic, and Ludlov was terrified their last chance to save Alvarado had slipped away. Refusing to give up, Chappelle breathed in deep and put her mouth to Alvarado's one more time. This time, it seemed like his chest moved slightly upwards. His body convulsed momentarily, and he let out a cough, followed by a deep, long, rasping inhalation. Then, he coughed even harder. His eyes fluttered open, and he beheld the woman who had saved him. A weak little smile appeared on the young man's face. Next time, do that when I'm awake. Abyssil! Chappelle cried out. You could have died! I think I did die. Are you an angel? Alvarado teased her further. Ludlov's heart overflowed with joy. His friend was back. The Flowers They decided not to travel any further that night and wait until morning. They used the last remaining daylight to cut down enough underbrush to make a small camp. What was that thing that almost got the Esclavian? Tomgard asked no one in particular. It was a snake, obviously, Federhel replied. A green brusher, to be precise. Tomgard had already lost interest in the topic and was busy cleaning his teeth with his dagger. The conversation had sparked Ludlov's interest, though. Why is it called that? he asked. Because it's green and it brushes, I suppose, Tomgard scoffed. Well, what it does most of the time is just hanging from the tree branches, pretending to be a vine. 
Federhel explained. It conserves its energy all through the day like that. Then when some animal or person comes by and brushes against it, it springs to life and attacks, releasing all of that energy at once. Ah, that explains its incredible speed, Rudloff said, less than happy to revisit the encounter. Not to mention strength. Ludlov heard Alvarado say in a voice that was little more than a hoarse whisper. Are you all right? He asked the Esclavian, who was lying down at the campfire, drinking from a small flask Gustav had given him earlier on. Yes, of course, Alvarado replied. Thank you again, amigo. You saved my life with your bravery. You are a hero. And whatever Master von Baumeister tells the Academy when we get back... <clears throat> You will get the highest marks from me. And you from me, Ludlov replied with an earnest nod. What is that you're drinking anyway? He asked, deflecting the rising emotion. I think it might be distilled goat urine, <clears throat> but it does wonders for my throat. Alvarado rasped, grinning. Ludlov gave his friend a supportive pat on the shoulder. It's you who are the hero, amigo. While Ludlov was preparing his bedroll, he noticed Blessed Zelenheim coming out of her night prayers. Ludlov, can you spare a moment? She asked. He stood up, walked past the fire and knelt down beside her, a little out of the way of the small camp. I want to ask you again if you would stand close and watch me as I perform the prayers of exorcism over the treasure. Of course, Blessed. Why do you ask me again? Ludlov said. She smiled a bit sheepishly. Interestingly, there is some common ground between performing an exorcism, fanning off a demon, and even praying for the protection of a loved one. I would like to write a book on the subject, but I do not share your skill with words. She admitted. Ludlov was surprised, but flattered. He had never seen himself as a particularly gifted writer. I am no great wordsmith, blessed, and I don't know whether I would be of great help or not, but if it brings the glory of the goddess closer to the people of Ivenendale, then I will gladly offer my assistance. Wisely spoken, said the priestess. Would you like to learn, then, how a curse is lifted? Yes, I would, Ludlov said. He had been very tired and happy to go to sleep, but he felt privileged to acquire such rare and powerful knowledge, whether he was ever going to write about it or not. First, you must understand that ordinary people are mostly powerless against curses. We of the Vox Dei have a little bit more authority over them than normal folk. And in the past, those who could apply Arcanic had still greater capacity. But in the end, when a curse is lifted, it is not you or I who do the real work. It is the intercession of a great saint that moves the angels of the goddess to combat the evil infestation and do away with it. Our job is to procure this intercession through prayer. Is that really all there is to it? Ludlov asked, a little disappointed. Just prayer? Why can't anyone do it then? because the words of different people carry different weight. When a peasant pleads with a king, it's not the same as when a nobleman does so, and a foreign nobleman will have less influence than a trusted friend. It is no different in the heavenly realm. We of the Vox Dea are closer to the heavenly realm than most, and through our ordination we carry just enough authority to curry the favor of the saints. The saints, in turn, are much closer to the angels, the archangels, the maiden, and ultimately the goddess herself. In the end, the power that lifts the curse always comes from her. She took out a small medallion of Santa Gwendala and gently caressed it. I understand, Ludlov said. Thinking of the dangers of the jungle and the perils they had already faced, he quietly wondered whether the priestess's book would ever be written.
Ludlov woke up more refreshed than he would have expected after sleeping on the damp soil of Garadoso. In the light of morning, they could all see an open space ahead between the trees, shrouded in white mist. The golden light of the sun was reflected in the myriad of dewdrops strewn about the foliage surrounding them. As they continued their trip, they emerged out of the trees and found themselves moving down the slope of a grassy hill. In front of them lay one of the most majestic sights Ludlow had ever seen. They had a panoramic view of a vast bow-shaped valley, with jungle-covered hills in the east and west and a chain of tall mountains in the north. The other side of the valley was at least 10 miles away. In the center stood a round, white hill. At first it seemed like it had snowed there, but that was of course impossible. Federhel still had his spyglass with him and was able to clarify the strange white color of the hill. Apparently, it was entirely covered with flowers. The hill was capped by a stone archway leading to a bridge which crossed a considerable distance over a wide river that ran diagonally through the entire valley, from the mountains northeast into the jungle growth southwest. At the far end of the bridge, at the foot of the mountains, was another hill, on top of which stood a truly impressive monument. A vast temple, resting with its back against a solitary mountain. It was constructed in multiple square tiers, wider at the bottom than at the top, stacked on top of each other, each slightly smaller than the one below it, thus forming terraces that had been partially claimed by the jungle. Here and there, the massive roots of thick trees had pierced through the stones of the temple to take hold of it. On the east and west sides ran raised stairs, all the way to the top of the temple. There rested the most disturbing sight of all, an enormous stone head facing the adventurers directly. The colossal work of ancient art resembled some majestic but wrathful bearded figure. Its eye sockets were nothing more than gaping holes. Its mouth was closed in a dour expression. On top of the head was a forest of bushes and even a tree or two. The Temple of Kulmaron, Alvarado said, his voice still somewhat hoarse, but his mood remarkably bright. I assume that friendly-looking chap on top is Kulmaron himself, Tomgard said. The deities of the Matpatanians weren't friendly, I'm afraid. They were fickle and hard to please. That's why they constructed temples such as these, Federhel said. Beware, von Baumeister proclaimed. That temple will be full of dangers. It will be a maze in there, a labyrinth of utter darkness. And then there are the creatures that will have taken residence in it. Bats, scorpions and the like. There will be things there that thrive in the dark. But also treasure, Gustav added optimistically. Let us not forget that these ancient gods were likely demons who enjoyed ruling over mortals, Blessed Zelenheim said. Their influence will still be palpable. Whatever remains of their evil, we will drive it out, Chappelle said with barely contained fury in her voice. When they reached the bottom of the valley and the white hill came nearer, it became clear that the flowers were in fact Strandkrona. Crowns of Kulmaron, Federhel said softly. Astounding. That ugly fault god does not deserve such a beautiful flower dedicated to him, Chappelle said. That may be why it was renamed Strandkrona in the north, Ludlov remarked. Alvarado ran up the hill with the unstoppable enthusiasm of a child. It's unbelievable, amigos! He cried out in his broken voice. Strandkrona in full bloom! I haven't seen this in ages! And never, never in my whole life anything like this! The whole hill! Isn't it glorious? 
It was glorious, Ludlow thought. Not only were the flowers gorgeous, but their scent was so lovely it made him want to stay on this hill for hours. He gently strolled between the flowers, then knelt down to take one in his hand and investigate its five blade-like petals more closely. His instinct told him he wanted to pick some to give to Maria. She had always loved flowers. Even the scent of these reminded him of her for some reason and made it feel like she was nearby. I wish I could plant them in the garden of the witch hunter headquarters, Alvarado said. You couldn't, Gustav said. They would never survive the journey home. You couldn't even grow the seeds in Evanendale. They need this kind of moist heat. You sound like you've tried, Flatlander, Alvarado observed. I did try. It didn't work. Alvarado looked disappointed, but still proceeded to pick a few of the Strandkrona flowers. Meanwhile, von Baumeister strode on at a relentless pace. Come, all of you. My destination lies ahead, not here. We've come to find treasure, not to pick flowers, Tormgard added, in his usual sycophantic way. Chappelle, who stood nearby, heaved a deep sigh. Ludlow thought she was irritated by Tormgard's behavior, but then he discovered there was another reason for her mood. She looked up the hill and then turned to Ludlow. It seems every blaze of great natural beauty in this world ends up corrupted by demon-worshipping peoples. It makes me ashamed to be human. Left to his natural state, man always becomes an idolater, Blessed Zelenheim said as she passed them by. Chappelle followed her, as did Gustav. Alvarado, are you coming? Ludlow called out. The Esclavian was still picking flowers and putting them in his backpack. Hold on, amigo, he yelled, as he closed his backpack and quickly slung it over his shoulder. Together they ascended the hill and reached the archway, from whence the bridge began. The bridge was straight and narrow, and had no railing of any kind. One bad step would be enough to plummet down into the river far below. They moved along in single file, in the same order they had reached the top of the hill. Ludlov closed the ranks, with Alvarado right in front of him. It was eerily quiet here, high above the river. They moved slowly, so that even their footsteps made little noise. The mists had withdrawn into the hills, leaving the azure sky wide open. An angry sun shone down on them, and Ludlow longed for the shady hat he would receive upon reaching the rank of witch-hunter. No one slipped or fell along the way, but Ludlow still felt relieved when he stepped down from the bridge onto the hill on the other side. The temple rose above them like a dark mountain. The colossal head on top of it was far more intimidating up close, and Ludlow couldn't wait to be out of sight of it, even if it meant entering the ominous building. Right in front of them was a huge double door, at least as tall as two men, made out of a pair of massive slabs of stone. There were words carved into them, which Ludlow could not recognize, but to his astonishment, the letters themselves were easy enough to read. They were carved in his own alphabet, albeit in a different style than he was used to. How do we open the door? Turmgard wondered aloud. Ignoring him, Ludlow turned to Faderhel. Can you read it? he asked. I can, Faderhel said. It's a scorton, carved in Oba Classican lettering. That's odd, Chappelle remarked. I would have expected some sort of hieroglyphic markings in a place like this. So would I, Faderhel said. These words weren't carved here by the Matpatanians. That much is obvious. I think it must have been Sintrasha, or her helpers. They used this temple to hide their treasure, von Baumeister said. What do the words mean, initiate? That's easy enough, the young man said. It says, those who seek riches must prepare to be tested in body, mind and soul. 
Good, Alvarado said. If they need a strong body, I have one. Fedahel has the best mind in Seven Peaks, and Blessed Zelenheim can take care of our souls. Actually, I have all three, Gustav remarked somewhat indignantly. I'm quite strong, remarkably smart, and very religious. Ludlov raised an eyebrow. Religious? You? I hadn't quite expected that. It's true, I am. I've participated in all kinds of religions, Gustav said, provoking a frown from the priestess. These words are a bit vague, aren't they? Chappelle said, ignoring the silly conversation. What exactly do they tell us about entering the temple? I should have known, Tomgard complained. Treasure hunts always have these annoying riddles and puzzles, at least in the tales I've heard. This may take ages. Then help us resolve them instead of whining about it, Chappelle shot at him. Honestly, you remind me of a child sometimes, Tomgard. The witch hunter could only respond with a quiet look of outrage. Ludlow found it more amusing than he should. Perhaps we have to say the right words, Alvarado suggested. We come with the approval of Crankor himself, he called out towards the door in his hoarse voice. We have been deemed worthy. Nothing happened. Well, it was worth a try, he said with a shrug. The words on the door speak of body, mind and soul, Fedahel mused. Perhaps the challengers meant it in that order. Then opening the door is but a test of strength, Tomgard said. That I can handle, he continued, and proceeded to throw his weight against the stone. The door budged a little bit, opening just enough to allow a mouse to creep through. Ludlow was rather impressed. Tomgard did look like a strong man, he thought, but this was a remarkable feat. <sighs> well, it's a beginning, Tomgard said, a little out of breath. Meanwhile, Chappelle was looking at the vines and creepers that covered the temple walls around the door. Then, without warning, she leaped onto one of the hanging vines and used it to climb the wall. She was as lithe as a cat, Ludlow realized, as agile as Tomgard was strong. She was climbing up and to their right, in the direction of a small stone building attached to the temple. Its roof was overgrown with roots and vines, but then Ludlov realized what she was aiming for. There was an opening there, in between the roots of a strange, smooth-barked tree that stood right on top of the little building. Chapelle made her way onto the roof and disappeared into the hole. Chapelle! he called out. She didn't respond, but instead they saw the blade of her rapier appearing between the parasite plants that had entirely covered half of the small building. Everyone went towards her as she cut away the growths and appeared in an open doorway that had been entirely hidden by nature's embrace. Arriving first, Ludlow stooped as he entered the ruin. There was very little light, but it was just enough to see the heavy metal turning wheel that still looked to be in surprisingly good shape. It's a gatehouse, Chappelle declared. Then this must be our test of strength, Ludlow said. Indeed, turning the wheel proved to be much harder than they had anticipated. It took the combined efforts of Ludlow, Tomgard and Alvarado, the three strongest men in the group, but eventually they managed to do it. With each quarter turn, they heard and felt something heavy and metallic falling into place. Von Baumeister returned to the door and confirmed that it had slowly been opening. Another few turns were enough to open it completely. Eventually, it allowed everyone to leave the overgrown gatehouse and cautiously enter through the massive doors into the temple of Kulmaron. The Temple A huge, dark hallway stretched out in front of them. They made torches from some material they found inside and steeled themselves as they entered through the door. 
As he did so, Ludlow felt like an intruder in some predator's den. Whether it was his imagination or a goddess-given intuition, he didn't know. But he sensed an old and malignant presence, stirring with anger at their entrance. Despite their tortures, they still couldn't see much more than the stone floor stretching out into the gloom. Ludlow glanced towards the priestess. Even in the failing light, he could still see the concern etched on her face. The air was cold, not just refreshingly cool after the heat of Garadoso, but actually chilling. And there was a strange breeze that seemed to come from all around. The smell in the air was one that Ludlow didn't quite recognize. There was the earthy scent of ancient stonework, but it was mingled with something else. He could almost say, Magic, von Baumeister sneered, his voice resounding in a grim and ominous tone in this cavernous hallway. Dark magic. I can sense it. It lies heavily upon this place. Be on your guard, all of you. Federhel brought his torch to the wall on his right and gasped. There was a vast mural carved into it in magnificent detail, decorated with geometric patterns and trimmings, even though the living characters depicted in the carvings were drawn in a simplified style. These must have been the ancient Caradorsians, Federhel said softly. I think these islands might have been highly significant places of worship in Matpatanian times. Are there any other remnants of the civilization? Chappelle asked. On this Gravia, you can find quite a bit, Alvarado said, but nothing like this. Even in the south of your own country, and in Parslavena, there are some ruins that prove they had a presence there, Federhel added. But as Alvarado said, nothing like this. Did Amia Ostinia write anything about this place? Ludlov asked. She did, but it was all theoretical. She never entered it although she did study the outside in detail. Something must have stopped her and her followers from passing beyond that door, and I don't think it was just the door itself. They all stared in silence at the carving. It was a procession of people bearing gifts, fruit, animals, even children. As they continued, they left the small spot of sunlight from the doorway through which they had entered far behind them. Now it felt like they had truly left the normal world. The hallway very gradually grew narrower, Ludlow noticed, but the carving of the gift bearers did indeed continue on both sides. They walked on for what felt like a long time, quietly and carefully, their torches now the only source of light. Suddenly, the corridor ended in a doorway that led into what was probably a wider hall by the feel of the air. The torchlight was too weak to show the walls on the other side, but as they stepped out of the corridor, they discovered that the stone floor beneath their boots had been replaced by a rusty metal grid. Careful, von Baumeister warned again. There could be a trap here. Everyone stood still for a moment. Spread out across the room, that we may see a bit more of it, said von Baumeister. But stay close to the walls. Ludlow followed Federhel, Alvarado and Chapelle to the right, while von Baumeister, Turmgard, the priestess and Gustav made their way along the wall to the left. Soon it became apparent to Ludlow that the room was actually octagonal in shape. The carving of the procession still continued, until they reached the far side, where they met up with the other group. Their torches revealed where the carving ended, and they all looked on in utter shock. The massive head of Kumaron was the centerpiece of the carving, and into his wide-open mouth stepped the gift-bearers. Only, they weren't just the bearers, Ludlow realized with a sickening feeling. 
They were the gifts themselves. People were sacrificed in this temple. Ludlove said softly. To appease the sea god. Chappelle opened her mouth to react, but then looked up as a strange metallic sound emerged from above. There was a lingering groan, followed by a heavy clank, and then hissing. Were there snakes in this room? Ludlov clasped his torch more tightly, wondering what to do. Not again! Alvarado whined. Back against the wall! Von Baumeister bellowed, but it was too late. A torrent of fine sand rained down upon them, pushing them down. Ludlow fought the pressure of the weight and managed to remain upright, but beside him he could just make out Chappelle falling down right before the sand extinguished the last torch. In the utter darkness, he called out her name. Chappelle! Chappelle! Then he felt her grasping his arm and pulling herself back up. Together they made their way to the wall. The last remaining sand filtered away through the grid. <coughs> there was coughing and panting everywhere, and Ludlow could hear Blessed Zelenheim fervently praying for help. So now the darkness is complete. Ludlov said to no one in particular. We have to go back, Chappelle said, the fear in her voice palpable. No, said Federhel. If we do that, we will be punished. Punished? By whom? Whoever made this place is long dead, Tomgard remarked. I mean, everything's been put here for a reason, Federhel explained, trying to remain calm either by the Mapatanians or by Queen Sintrasha. We are on this road now, and we have to follow it to the end. I'm sure of it. He's right, Gustav said. And luckily, the road ahead is simple enough. What do you mean, Flatlander? Tuomgard asked, his usual gruff impatience now tinged with uncertainty. There is a staircase here, Gustav said. I can feel it. It goes straight up. This is no time for jokes, Gustav, Chappelle said, her voice quivering. I'm not joking, the shopkeeper defended himself. There really is a way up. I would take one of those glowing spheres out of my backpack to show you if I still had them, but I don't. Hmm, perhaps the sand has weighed down some pressure plate below the grid that opened up a hidden doorway leading to that staircase, Federhel theorized. I think it's right where the Kulmaran carving was. Gustav said. So the carving was the door. In any case, I vote for the staircase, Alvarado said. Even if it does lead to some ancient sacrificial chamber. I agree with Federhel that returning is not an option. As do I. And if I may remind you, my opinion is the only one that matters, von Baumeister said. We take the stairs. As Ludlov made to move towards the staircase, he found himself bumping into Chappelle. I'm sorry, they both said at once, <laughs> then simultaneously scoffed at themselves. I think it's this way, Chappelle said, her voice moving away from him. You can't miss it, Gustav called out from somewhere above them. He had to be part way up the stairs already. I hate the dark, Chappelle muttered as she stumbled on. You know, if these ruins frighten you, just remember, I am here, Alvarado said, half-joking. Clumsily, they all found their way to the staircase, Ludlov once again finding himself closing the line. They ascended slowly, refusing to be goaded on by Gustav, who didn't seem to notice the dark at all. A chill breeze traveled down to meet them, and it felt less than welcoming. Ludlov believed he could get used to the dark, but the strange movement of the air never ceased to disturb him, as if there were invisible ghosts hovering nearby, observing their every move. It was quiet, 
so quiet that Ludlov could hear the soft hissing of sand below them. The sand in the room below is shifting again, he said to everyone else, suddenly gripped by fear. I think it's moving out of it. It may trigger some other mechanism, Federhell called back. Up! Quickly! Von Baumeister shouted. We leave this staircase now! The corridor was filled with the noise of rushing clothes, clinking gear and hastening boots, but still Ludlov clearly heard the click when Gustav reached the top and stepped on a tile just beyond the last step. Behind him came the dark roar of stone scraping stone, followed by a booming thud. It was silent. What happened? Chappelle said. The door behind us, Ludlow said, trying to keep the rising panic out of his voice. It's closed shut. Gustav, what is up there? Alvarado asked. A room, it seems. Does it matter? Do we have any other choice besides entering it? Blessed Zelenheim asked, the patience and softness gone from her voice. No. We don't, Tomgard admitted. But I'm beginning to have the feeling these ancient heathens are toying with us from beyond the grave. I don't like it one bit. The Room They were all standing near the doorway, none of them daring to move further into the room. Well, we won't accomplish much just by standing here, Tomgard said, and for once Ludlov had to agree with him. The way the witch hunter's voice resounded made it clear they were in a relatively small room, far less cavernous than any of the spaces they had visited so far in this strange temple. They all started to shuffle ahead very carefully, and it didn't take long before someone bumped into something. <coughs> Ludlov heard a stifled grunt and the clatter of wood onto the stone floor. My Saint Engelbert's, von Baumeister hissed angrily. There is a pile of driftwood here, or something like it. Before anyone could react, a woman's scream resounded, accompanied by more clattering. But there was a different quality to the sound, less hollow. Bones, Blessed Zelenheim cried. They're skeletons, rib cages, and skulls. Are you all right, Blessed? Alvarado asked. I'm fine, she replied, calming down. Thank you, Alvarado. I feel rocks here, Federhel said. And shards of pottery, Chappelle added, shoving some of the clutter away with her boot. Careful here. I think they're sharp. Broken urns or something. Perhaps this was some kind of storage room, Gustav suggested. Maybe if it was managed by Alvarado, Chappelle said. It seems about as messy here as his personal quarters back in Seven Peaks. How do you know his personal quarters? Gustav asked. There goes our secret. <clears throat> Alvarado's sudden groan indicated Chappelle had managed to locate him in the dark. Sometimes witch hunters are assigned to inspect the initiate's quarters, she clarified. Actually, I think my quarters are fine compared to this, Alvarado said. But I am used to finding my way in messy places. Let me explore a little further. They heard more shuffling, clattering, sliding and thudding as the Esclavian skulked around the room. Hmm, I think I found something significant over here, he said then. What is it? Von Baumeister asked. You should come over here and feel it, the initiate said. Tomgard, make your way to the Esclavian initiate's voice the master commanded. Turmgard quickly tripped over something and fell down onto what sounded like a large metal object, perhaps some sort of armor or shield. Muttering curses, he got up again and made his way to the other side of the room. Here, feel it, Alvarado said. A great beast of sorts. No, it's a dragon, Turmgard said. I'm certain of it. You mean the statue of a dragon, I assume? Von Baumeister said. Yes, master, but it's quite lifelike. 
Faderhell had made his way to the dragon statue as well. May I feel the head? Here it is, Alvarado said. Hmm. Two curled arms, like a ram's, and a single straight arm in the middle. I might have known. Exarchalox, von Baumeister said. That name was known to all of them, Ludlow thought. The great dragon Exarchalox had been summoned by the Ungra in ages past to hunt down the Sintra. Some stories placed the appearance of the beast shortly after the exodus of Queen Sintrasha. Others had Exarchalox appearing much later, after the Ungra themselves had left Oskurta. Indeed, Master, Federhel said. There can be no doubt. Exarchalox wasn't a very big dragon. In fact, this statue may be even life-sized, but he was extremely dangerous due to his ability to breathe fire without limits. Reminds me again how that story ended, Ludlow said. It clearly didn't manage to exterminate the Sintra, since there are probably more of them now than there are Ungra. So what happened? The Sintra tricked it and poisoned it, Chappelle answered before Federhel could. Can you poison a dragon? Gustav asked. It breathes fire for maiden's sake. Watch your tongue, Gustav, Blessed Zelenheim said. Actually, all you need to poison a dragon is metal, Chappelle said, ignoring Gustav's irreverent language. I actually didn't know that part, Federhel admitted. My mother used to read to me from a big book of legends from around the world, Chappelle said. The stories about dragons always stuck with me. I do love those. They are evil beasts. If not created by Lucas, then in league with him, von Baumeister said. I know, Master, Chappelle admitted. But I love the stories. Stories or no, how do we get out of here? Tomgard said, his familiar impatience on full display in his voice. Well, the Sintra tricked the dragon by feeding it metal, causing the dragon to overheat, Chappelle said. Exarchalox began to glow, and in his pride he believed the glow was making him even more powerful and magnificent. But actually, he was melting from the inside and thus was killed. Dragons don't feel pain. Federhel clarified. Well, I think we should do what the Sintra did. This statue's mouth is wide open, and the room is full of all kinds of junk. We could easily throw in some metal, and maybe it will light up eventually. That sounds ridiculous, Tomgard said. We should just fill the walls for an exit. Nothing's stopping you from doing that, Witch Hunter, Gustav said. But I'll take my chances with the statue. Don't throw in any bones, wood or stone, Chappelle warned. Only metal. If you find some metal, hand it over to me and I will put it in the dragon's mouth, Alvarado said, who was closest to the statue along with Federhel. Desiring to contribute to the endeavor, Ludlow began to feel around in the dark for any metal scraps. He mostly found dusty crockery and piles of bricks, but Chapelle, Gustav and von Baumeister managed to hand over some tin goblets, rusty swords and oil lanterns that lay scattered around the table. Gustav even found some cutlery. All of it entered into the dragon's mouth through Alvarado's and Federhel's hands. At first, nothing happened. But strangely enough, neither was there any sound of metal clattering into the stone gullet. The objects just disappeared, as if they really had been swallowed by some creature. Then, unmistakably, there came a very faint, dull red glow. The first sight to penetrate the darkness since their torches had gone out. As more objects were added, the glow slowly grew brighter, until it became strong enough to outline the form of the dragon. The faint light came from its chest, but it spread out across the entire statue, making it look like there really was a glowing red dragon in this gloomy place. Eventually, the light became strong enough that Ludlow could make out his companion standing near the beast, as well as the piles of refuse that had been put here. Everything looked red, a single color dominating all that could be seen. As the statue had begun to glow, it had also been warming up, and now it was so hot that Alvarado and Federhal had to back away from it. The entire room was now bathing in a suffocating heat, and Ludlow felt like jumping into a lake of cold water. Tormgard was still standing to one side, his hands on the walls. 
he was looking up at something, pearls of sweat glistening on his forehead. Thanks for the light, lads, he said. There is an exit, but it's up there. Following his gaze, Ludlove could see a crawling space near the ceiling of the room. A slight-framed person like Chappelle could get in there, provided she manages to get up to that height in the first place, Tomgard said. I will do it, Chappelle said from across the room. Let me stand on your hands, Tomgard. She passed by Ludlove, took off her witch hunter hat and handed it to him. Hold on to this for me, Ludlove. Then she went on to Tomgard, who weaved his fingers together for her to step on. As she did so, he gave her a lift and she grabbed on to the opening in the wall. Chappelle pulled herself up and quickly disappeared into the crawling space. Well, there is a hole here at the end of this little tunnel. Her muffled voice called out. No idea what's down here or if I'll ever be able to get back up though. Perhaps you should wait then, Chappelle. Ludlove shouted, suddenly feeling a jolt of panic at the idea of her inadvertently falling to her death or being locked up forever. I think it was the idea, she replied. It's a test of bravery. You don't know that, Gustav yelled, sounding equally worried as Ludlove. I will see you on the other side, treasure hunters, Chappelle's voice resounded. And then it became terribly quiet. No one spoke for at least a minute. The light of the dragon was slowly beginning to fade, as if it had used up all of its fuel. Ludlov's heart raced. For all he knew, Chappelle had jumped down into some vast underground lake hundreds of meters below, or worse, now found herself entombed in some dark shaft of stone, unable to even move. He knew it was senseless, but he suddenly felt angry with her. How could she have been so imprudent? Then he realized how his fingers were digging into the brim of Chappelle's hat, and knew his anger was only there to distract him from the impossible horror of her doom. Then all of a sudden, there was a soft groaning of metal from behind the wall besides the dragon, ending in a dull clang. Soon after, stone rumbled, grains of sand cracked and dust hissed as part of the wall came sliding down. From the cloud of dust that billowed up into the room, barely visible in the fading light, emerged the slender figure of Chappelle. You will not believe what's ahead in the next room. Thank you for listening to the seventh episode of The Treasure of Boneyard Bay, A Witch Hunter Tale. I better finish the outline of our next story before YouTube catches up with me. These are some of the wonderful people breathing down our necks on Patreon, in the most gentle way of course, to give us inspiration and motivation to keep on writing, recording, editing and publishing. Amy and Dallas Austin Matt Petain Peter Strandkrone Cameron Brantley, Joseph Stowell, Cody Heitsch, Mix and Match, Arno Teva, Caitlin Bredenkamp, Kat Mosseri, Ryan Stock, Tony Ranico, and Liam Gabriel. Thank you all so much. Whenever I touch my keyboard to write, I think about how lucky we are with such loyal fans and supporters. You've made it this far without the extended edition, unless you're listening to both, like we know some of you do. But if you're still curious about it, or you're looking for a cool Halloween present, you can treat yourself to almost an hour of extra content of The Treasure of Boneyard Bay by joining our Witch Hunter Master tier on Patreon or purchasing the story on Bandcamp. This bell was to wake you up in case my talking sent you off to sleep and to remind you to subscribe and click the notification bell or to activate the RSS feed if you're on Podbean. Feel free to check out our tiers on patreon.com slash audioepics and consider supporting us for $1 a month. That would be a mere $12 a year, but it would almost pay for one month of our Soundly subscription, which makes finding the right and legal sound effects and editing them in our stories much easier than it was when creating the Beast of the Western Wilds. Our next chapter is called The Spikes. 
and will be premiered next week. So maybe we'll meet Buffy looking for a new Mr. Pointy. I'm gonna leave you now speculating and fantasizing about what's in the next room. It's bedtime over here and I wish you all a great rest of the week and an awesome weekend. And I hope to see you again next week for episode 8. We'll be hanging out on YouTube again in the VIP chat launch during the premiere and we hope to see you there. Good night.